0: Amen. You may be seated. You can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, we're just looking at verses 16 through 21 this morning. And, um, In a good book on preaching that I've read a few years ago by Murray Kappel called The Heart is the Target, he says this, the human heart is made to reach out beyond itself so, as G.K. Chesterton is alleged to have said, when people reject God, they do not worship nothing, they worship anything. That's really the history of humanity in a nutshell. We are made for worship, and if God is not the object of our worship, we will ceaselessly replace him with anything else. And so idolatry is really at the root of all sin. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, and you don't break any of the other nine until you've first broken that first one. So whenever we confess sin... We are seeking to root out the idol of our heart that has distracted us from worshiping the one true God. This is the primary reason that the Israelites have gathered together. We saw this at the beginning of the chapter. They gathered together. They spent three hours reading God's word and then responding to that for three hours confessing their sin and praising God. And so they had burdened, they had been burdened as they continued to learn more about God's law, God's will for their lives. They had become convicted of that and they sought to reconcile with God through this corporate gathering, this assembly gathered together to confess their sin together. And so, again, that's the the primary reason that they've gathered because of that burden that they feel. And yet, the Levites have opened up this prayer, and we assume the Levites are the ones, you know, it says, it lists the names of these Levites in verses four and five, and then it be, uh, we begin to hear the, the content of their prayer laid out in verses um, six and following. And so it seems like this is the Levites leading them in this corporate gathering, but everyone's in agreement with what they're saying. And so the Levites leading the assembly have spent this first third of the prayer simply praising God. They've praised him for his attributes as well as his actions, especially uh, his covenant faithfulness. And so they gather to confess their sin, and they haven't done that yet. It's interesting. All they've done is, is praise God. It does reveal an important principle, I think, that true repentance is not separate from praise it's it's part of it All right, we praise god in our repentance so that might sound obvious to you but i think it's actually quite profound imagine how much more sincere your apologies would be if you began by first acknowledging your love and your appreciation for the one you offended whether it be your spouse your child your sibling Imagine if you started by elaborating on what they mean to you, how glad you are that they're in your life, before you even got to the apology. How sincere do you think your apology would, would feel at that point? I think it would revolutionize the way conflict is resolved in our homes if we began with this principle. And we're not talking about our relationships, though, with our family members. We're talking about our relationship with God, the way we communicate with God. And so, to that end, passages like this are extremely helpful. It gives us the language of prayer, it teaches us how to confess our sin. And so, the Levites began by highlighting God's name, his eternal attributes, his authority over all things that he created in heaven, on earth, in the sea. And they're praising him as their maker. And they recall not only who he is, but what he has done. How he has established the covenant with Abraham and faithfully kept those promises through the patriarchs. And so before we read this section of the prayer, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have examples of prayer in scripture it helps us to recognize how we can come before you with reverence to acknowledge your majesty your glory your holiness lord it reminds us that we must come humbly we must recognize our weaknesses our imperfections our need for you and so we come lord asking that You would give us eyes to see. Lord, soften our hearts to respond appropriately to this passage. May it bring conviction where we need to be convicted. And Lord, may we understand the gospel and be comforted by it. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 16. Again, they've just finished reciting all that God has done, his covenant faithfulness. And we, we see in verse 16, but, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness." The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, as we've seen, this prayer extends all the way through to the end of the chapter, uh, but we're taking it in pieces to, to understand each, each component. Um, and so this, the focus in this section is really confession, right? But it's, it's dual pronged, right? You've got confession of sin as well as confession of faith. And we've already said that they've, experienced, they've expressed their praise to God for who he is and what he's done. So by way of recap, let me begin with this before we even get to your outline here. They, they really are confessing their faith once again in this section. Our confession of sin is not divorced from our profession of faith. We confess in light of what we know to be true about God. Unfortunately, so often we, we rush past or completely ignore adoration in our prayers. Right, it's easy for us to, to simply have an idea of what we want to pray about, uh, a request, a supplication, a, a concern we have, and to just go directly into that, to enter right in and almost to be flippant about who we're praying to. And we, we don't take the time to humble ourselves, to, to adopt a, a, a reverent frame of mind and a posture before him. See, God preserved his people. We see this throughout this prayer. God, it says, you saw, as they're praying to God, you saw, you gave, you provided, you sustained. God rescued them out of their bondage in Egypt. He performed miracles against Pharaoh. During their wilderness wandering, God provided the law. He instructed them very clearly. Uh, He gives them bread from heaven miraculously. He gives them water from a rock when they're thirsty. This generation had received an abundance of privileges and advantages compared to most people before and since. But they, it says multiple times as well. it, It says God does all these things, but they, in contrast the author of Hebrews tells us they were rebellious. Their disobedience prevents them. It, it prevented them from entering into the, the rest of the promised land. And their tragic story is found in Exodus and Numbers, and yet it's recalled. It's a theme we find as well throughout scripture. Every time I, I preach on a, a passage, I one of the first goals that, I, that I'm trying to understand as I'm reading the passage devotionally is, is, what is what is the aspect of our fallen condition that's being addressed in this passage? Brian Chapel calls this the, the fallen condition focus. In order to get to the gospel, we need to understand the problem that the gospel solves. And we want to do so in the context of the passage, And so this morning, the fallen condition focus is, is fairly easy to discern. It's, it's right there on the surface, right? The Levites, they lead Israel in the confession of their iniquities, the ways in which they've offended their maker, the ways in which they've been unfaithful to a faithful God. And so they confess their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers. Those sins were passed down to their children, eventually becoming their own sinful tendencies. And so it's easy. We, we see this in our own lives. We, we can recognize the consequences of original sin. It's quite obvious if we're honest with ourselves. But the hereditary component of sin is still one of the greatest mysteries of Christianity. We still struggle to understand how it can be fair. So we'll talk about that this morning. But as we consider this doctrine, I hope you'll see that it's when we're ready to admit our flaws. Even even the ones we were born with that we're more more apt to submit to the Father. And so this brings us to our, our first point here. Confess our sinfulness. Verses 16 through 18. Confess our sinfulness. The, the faith that they confessed brought them to a reverent frame of mind. We've mentioned that. In fact, the word reverence came up in the last song that we sang from Psalm 5. We also saw it in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 5. This word reverence is on the verge of being lost today. I've put some brief thoughts toward at some point writing a book on this idea because I'd I think it, it would be something worth considering, right, This sincere expression of their faith makes the confession of their sin all the more convicting, right? Because they recognize who they're praying to, because they've come with a reverent posture, it makes them all the more convicted about the one they've offended. They take it seriously they're not just going through the motions and so they confess four distinct ways in which they've sinned against God one is that the Israelites were presumptuous you see this in the very beginning right but they and our fathers acted presumptuously verse 16 they stiffened their neck and did not obey their commandment uh, your commandments so they presumed that God would be faithful you're a faithful God you've Made these promises, and we know you're true to keep your promises. And so they presumed that he would be faithful and that they could do whatever they wanted. Right? Instead of following God, they obstinately did whatever they wanted to do. And this is related to what comes next they were cont- contumacious. I thought i'd teach you a new word because we had to learn it as elders of the church they're stiff necked and they refuse to obey his will contumacious is just an old-fashioned word for stubborn you have to learn this word when you become an elder in the pca because it it shows up often in the section on church discipline so the israelites are wandering in the wilderness Likened to mules stiffening their neck against their master, refusing to take the yoke of their, their master upon them. The, the, instead of following God, they, they do whatever they want. And here's the, the silly thing is, they knew they were not in a position to call the shots. After being rescued out of Egypt, now they're in the wilderness. They're in no place to be making demands or determining their, you know, where they would go and what they would do. They're, they're completely at the mercy of God. And so we're dumbfounded by their reactions until we look at our own hearts, right? And unfortunately, disobedient members in the modern church are the same. Instead of complaining against God, you know, we, we simply... Uh, excuse our sin and if we want to indulge in that sin further and a church is attempting to practice discipline we'll just find another church that doesn't practice discipline and there's plenty of those around unfortunately they leave a true church for a false one in that sense so the Israelites were presumptuous they were contumacious Third, they were oblivious. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They were not mindful of the wonders. And they rejected God's will, so they were oblivious to what he was doing. Or simply just not thinking about it. Not acknowledging the miracles that are taking place all around them. They quickly forgot the predicament they were in. And they were even prepared to appoint a leader to take them back to Egypt. You read about that in Numbers 14, 1 through 4. They had gone through extensive suffering in Egypt, and they were ready to return to it. All right, there's something comfortable about slavery in their minds because, you know, maybe they didn't know Uh, They knew it wouldn't be pleasant, but they at least knew it was predictable. And so they were oblivious to all that God was doing around them, showing himself, revealing himself. Instead of worshiping and praising him, they rebelled against him. And lastly, and maybe at the root of all of it, is their idolatry. It's confessed in verse 18. Even, Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, It's sort of the pinnacle of idolatry, this illustration that we find reiterated again in the Old and New Testament by the prophets, uh, by the apostles. They made a golden calf when they grew tired of waiting for Moses, who was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. So they asked Aaron to make a representation of the God who brought them out of Egypt. And so he tells them, Bring your donations of of jewelry. He takes that and he throws it in the fire and out pops this golden calf. At least that's the story he told. So while Moses was receiving the written revelation of the moral law, this rebellious generation was breaking the law that had already been written on their hearts. G.K. Bill says this, what people revere they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Why would they create an image of the invisible God? It wasn't because they were seeking to honor him. This wasn't the feeble attempt of naive people. That they suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of creation. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is the summary that Paul gives us in Romans 1. And slowly but surely, they became more and more like the deaf, blind, and mute idols that they worshiped. It's, a, it's an analogy, right? It's an illustration of their spiritual condition, that they are becoming deaf, blind, and mute, incapable of relating to the God who made them. In the book of Joshua, the Israelites miraculously cross the Jordan, just as God had miraculously uh, passed them through the Red Sea under the leadership of Moses. Now Joshua takes them through and they They cross into the promised land. It confirms that the Lord is with Joshua just as he was with Moses so that all the people could could trust him as their leader. The Lord gave them precise instruction for defeating Jericho. And it's another miraculous passage, right? They don't even have to lift a finger against their enemies. God would fight for them. They would only march around the city. So he gives them this instruction, and he tells them to devote everything to destruction. Whatever plunder was found was either to be destroyed or to be brought into the temple treasury. And so everyone knew this. But Achan rebels against God, and he takes multiple items from the plunder, including an idol, and he takes them back to his tent, and he buries them. And when the Israelites defeat Jericho, they move on and they come across this small town of Ai. And Joshua says, you know, we're tired. We've been traveling. Instead of sending everyone to defeat Ai, let's just send 3,000 troops over. And so they go and attempt to defeat Ai and they're routed and they are sent fleeing back. Uh, and, and roughly 30 men, I believe, are killed in that battle. And when they lose the battle, Joshua is confused because he's, he's just been given the promises that, right, that, that he is Moses' successor. God has passed them on to him. He's going to bring them into the promised land. They're going to remove all of their, their uh, enemies from the land. And so he and the elders, they, they fall on their face before the ark of the Lord. They throw dirt on their heads, just like we see uh, this assembly has done in Nehemiah 9. They're mourning. They're, they're concerned that God is angry with them. And so they mourn before the ark, seeking guidance. And the Lord tells them that Israel sinned by keeping something that was devoted to destruction. It's an illustration of the consequences of idolatry, and we question the fairness for several reasons. One, because Israel lost a battle with Ai, and the reason why they lost that battle was because God was angry with them, and the reason God was angry with Israel was because Achan sinned. And not only that, but Achan's iniquity was visited upon his whole family. They were all executed. Now, some, sometimes as we try to understand, we try to make sense of, of what the spouse and what his wife and his children had to do with this sin. We might think, well, they had to have known that he, he brought back these idols. They, they must have seen him digging up the hole and burying these idols, they, they bore some of the guilt. They were accessories, but the text doesn't tell us that. And I, I, I don't think that's really ultimately the point of the passage. Here's how Del, Ralph Davis says we should think about it. He says, naturally, we can complain, but we do better to fear. Fear because one man's sin turned away God's presence From a whole people. Fear because a man's whole household was drawn into his punishment. So while the Israelites were not in Egypt under Moses or Joshua, they understood that the sin of previous generations were representative of their own idolatry. We would be foolish to assume that we have advanced beyond the sins of previous generations. We continue to suffer from these very things, right? We're presumptuous. We're contumacious. We're oblivious. And we're idolatrous. Martin Luther's Catechism on the First Commandment says this, Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. And so one of the greatest problems I think in the evangelical church is that it has lost a sense of the gravity of sin. The weightiness of sin. It's lost the practice of church discipline. God seems to have Departed, in fact, from several churches in the midst of a very significant culture culture war. Why? Well, just as he departed Israel during their battle with Ai, he's departed where sin has been ignored rather than destroyed. We don't know this with certainty. Or we can't point to a specific aspect and say this is exactly why god hasn't given us that specificity but we do see a lack of church discipline and we see a continual failure on the part of the church to stand up against a rebellious culture and so the church is oftentimes unwilling to condemn sin in any serious way even from among their own members Again, Delroff David says, our problem is that we prefer the tolerance of men to the praise of God. And I would say we never understand the wrath of God. We'll never understand the way in which he punishes sin until it bothers us much more than it presently does. The idea that we are sinful We are to take sin seriously. That's, I think, the point of this prayer here. Allow yourself to be convicted of your own rebellion. Don't flippantly dismiss the discomfort. As the hymn says, let sorrow do its work. Allow the word of God to pierce between soul and spirit. It is God's loving means of bringing you to repentance, according to Romans 2.4. So the beginning of repentance is a broken heart, broken in a contrite spirit. We bring that before the Lord. But here's the amazing truth, is that, right, so oftentimes at this moment, we've confessed our sin, and we immediately transitioned into this endeavoring after new obedience, which is a good thing. Right, We say, I know I did that. And immediately we say, please help me not to do that in the future. It's a, that's, that's right. You know, seeking the grace of God to respond in a way that honors him in the future is good. And we'll see that later on in Nehemiah. That these people undergo a significant moral reform in response to their confession of sin. But what do the Levites immediately do? in this prayer after confessing the sin of their forefathers they acknowledge God's mercy that's the first thing you can see that in verses 19 through 21 and even in the second half of verse 17 they confess God's faithfulness so the first point was confess our sinfulness and then secondly confess God's faithfulness The prayer doesn't jump to a change of conduct until they've rightly recognized the God who empowers such radical transformation. So the theme of admitting our frequent rebellion against God is coupled with recalling God's frequent forgiveness, his readiness to forgive. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Herman Boving says this, there is indeed a solidarity in sin and suffering, and what he means by that is there's a, a communal aspect of sin and the consequences of sin, right? You don't ever just sin in isolation. Even if you committed the sin by yourself, it has consequences that reverberate throughout your home and throughout your community, as we've just seen. So there is indeed a solidarity in sin and suffering, but God permits it, and frequently, gives people the power to break with that moral community and themselves to become the forerunners of a generation that walks in the fear of the Lord and enjoys his favor. So again it's it, there's a there's a mysterious component to this and we won't will still have questions at the end of passages like this about the consequences of sin how how so and so experienced the the punishment. What was what was their fault, or how did why did they take a portion of the blame? But the mystery also is that God gives us power to break away from that moral community, away from that moral slide to destruction. He gives us his favor, he gives us his grace and his mercy, and that's what they express they're not simply following a mechanical formula for corporate confession we've done step one now we move on to step two they're crying out in heartfelt confession to a god they trust is listening and responding and so they acknowledge the misery of their sin and it's now led them to the fountain of grace and as they grew in their understanding of sin, they gained a greater appreciation for grace. The, the result of their tribulation was a deeper knowledge of God, and they point out four attributes of God, and we'll close with this. The four attributes of God described in 17, the second half of verse 17, and then verses 19 through 21. The first is that God forgives. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. They were all of these things in rebellion against you, but you didn't forsake them. God remained gracious and merciful to his covenant people. God is ready to forgive any and all who repent and place their trust in him. The gospel is really a simple message of hope. But it's only sweet to the hearts that have been singed by conviction of their own rebellion. And so if you are burdened or your sense of shame is great, lay that down at the foot of the cross. Cast your burdens upon Christ even now. And receive his assurance of pardon, his forgiveness. Secondly, we see that God guides them. So God forgives and then God guides. God continued to guide them, He continued to show them mercy. He, they deserved to be rejected, they deserved to be abandoned there in the wilderness. Right? They had not acknowledged Him, they had not given Him glory and praise that He deserved, they instead complained against Him. But instead of wiping them out, God remained faithful. The cloud continues to lead them by day, the fire by night. He does not depart from them. Thirdly, he provides for them in verse 20. He gave them a spirit to instruct them, manna to feed them, And water from a rock to quench their thirst. He's already mentioned these things previously in the prayer. So he's reminding them once again of how God has provided for them. Continues to be gracious to them. And then lastly, he sustained them. Verse 21. He preserved them for all 40 years in the wilderness. None of them died from starvation. They had clothing that didn't wear out. They had shoes that never made their feet swell. For 40 years. These some remarkable shoes. God took care of every need, and so we can take our conviction, the conviction that we rightly feel the shame for our own sin, and we can bring it before God. We can recognize his unrelenting mercy and grace in our lives, purchased on our behalf by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us give him thanks for that. Heavenly Father, as we consider this prayer from saints that we've never met, who are themselves praying about saints they had never met, we recognize so much solidarity in our experiences. we frequently wander away from your good provision, from your guidance, from your grace and your mercy. We, we, we fall into grievous sin. And we can even stay in that sin for a season, for a, a time. And we can compound one sin upon the other So that eventually we become numb to sin and and even unable to relate to you, to commune with you, to bring ourselves to praying to you. Lord, if there's anyone who feels like they're in that situation, may they rest in the promise that we've seen in this passage, Lord, that you are a forgiving God you continue to guide and provide and sustain your covenant people lord may may we return to you may we repent of our sin and our wayward hearts and once again come to the foot of the cross and receive your mercy Lord. to to be filled with the joy of our salvation that even in the midst of our trials and our tribulations, we can know that, that there is a, a glorious inheritance that awaits. And that that's not only for a future enjoyment, but that can change our perspective even now to fill us with great anticipation. Lord, help us to respond even now to give you praise, to confess our sin. And to confess our faith to the only one who's worthy to hear it, and the only one who can respond with that assurance of pardon that we need to hear. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response. We'll sing hymn number 488 May the mind of Christ, my Savior,